The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 81 of Some Assembly Required, your adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 76, The Blaze of Glory, The Flames of Love. This week's issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by John Buscema, inks by Tom Palmer, letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in May of 1970. Starting off with our cover, we have another very busy cover. I really like the cityscape in the background, although it kind of reminds me of the surface of the Death Star. Archon has a really awesome King Kong thing going on, having climbed the Empire State Building along with Scarlet Witch, and that idea is further carried over by Goliath climbing up the building as well. I think the caption at the bottom left corner is unnecessary, and it would have been nice for them to have done a little bit more with the black parts of the cover in the background, even maybe just some small white dots to make it look like a star field. So maybe New York at night would have been nice. I like the way that it looks. However, again, it looks like the cover was done on a soundstage. Finally, I really appreciate the way that the Avengers are arrayed because it kind of forces the eye to climb the tower along with the Avengers and eventually reach the focal point of Scarlet Witch and Archon. We find our heroes deep within Avengers Mansion, where Quicksilver and Vision are watching as Black Panther and Captain America attempt to put the finishing touches on what they call their D-Machine. I don't think that's a really good name for a machine, but we're going to go with it. With this device, the Avengers hope to bridge the gap between their dimension and that of Archon the Magnificent, Archon having kidnapped Scarlet Witch last issue. Obviously, their mission is near and dear to their hearts, the rescue of their former teammate Scarlet Witch. Impatiently though, Quicksilver chides his former teammates for taking their time, knowing that his sister's life could be in danger. Vision, however, is quick to point out that there is far more at stake than just Scarlet Witch's life, and that Quicksilver shouldn't be so fixated on a single life when there are so many more in peril. In spite of Quicksilver's earlier statement, though, Black Panther defends the speedster, noting that if Vision were more human, he might have a better understanding of what Pietro was going through. Now, I love that the Avengers are so quick and so willing to help Quicksilver, even given that their not-so-distant past didn't go over very well. Quicksilver is someone who left the team under less-than-ideal circumstances, and it would only be natural for the team to have trust issues when it comes to him. Instead, they dedicate themselves to helping him save his sister. They honestly know how much she means to him, and this is a really great example of heroes showing us how we should behave and really bringing out the best in humanity. I do find it interesting that Captain America is doing a lot of the work on the D-Machine. This kind of mechanical scientific thing really isn't his forte. Now, he is most likely under the direction of Black Panther, but even just as an assistant, it's really not Cap's thing to be so involved with the scientific stuff, especially when you have someone like Vision still kind of hanging around. 
Putting their banter aside for a moment, Black Panther tells Cap to initiate the device. Unfortunately, Black Panther's fears are realized when the machine's power supply proves unstable, causing him tremendous amounts of pain from the wild energy. Quicksilver attempts to intervene and rescue Black Panther, but is rebuffed by force fields that the machine puts in place to protect itself. With Black Panther barely holding on, Captain America acts quickly to free his friend, but in the process causes significant damage to the device. Now honestly, who puts force fields on a device like this? Why would you do that? Although it seems kind of twisted, and I think by now you've realized that I am a little twisted, I'm actually a little bit glad to see that their device doesn't work. So often when heroes, especially hero teams like the Avengers, get into situations like this, they build the device, maybe it doesn't work the first time, they do a little bit of fine tuning, and then they use the device to just hop on board the plot train and ride it to the end. While the device's existence isn't integral to the overall plot, the fact that it serves a different purpose than what one would normally expect, more of a distraction to the hero's ultimate goals as opposed to the vehicle by which they achieve it, I find to be rather enjoyable. I also really love the coloring when the machine fails to shut down and Black Panther is being tormented. The greens work really well with his blue and black costume and it's a really eye-popping catching panel. Now, in the end, these are the actions I would expect from Captain America. He is a man of action, and he knows what needs to be done, at least when we're talking about a big picture kind of sense. Although he does know, he has to know, that it ultimately will cause severe damage to the device, Cap is more concerned about Black Panther's life. It isn't worth killing one Avenger merely for the opportunity for the chance to save another one, especially when the Avengers haven't explored all other options at this point. If this were their last option, that calculus might be a little bit different, but based on the way the story plays out, this is really their first attempt. Unfortunately, with this latest setback, Quicksilver is unable to contain his frustrations anymore and releases it on his former teammates in an absolute tirade. Tempers flare and Quicksilver storms out. Now, while Quicksilver's response is 100% absolutely uncalled for, it is not particularly surprising. It's not that he's ungrateful for their efforts, but Quicksilver is a character who is known for being hot-tempered, for being impulsive. So the fact that he jumps onto his teammates when there's a setback and he begins to feel his chance to save Wanda slipping through his fingers is absolutely in character and I love that they embrace who Quicksilver is and really run with the character. That pun was not intended but I'm gonna go with it. Elsewhere in the mansion, Goliath we find working to create an oversized crossbow, which matches his inhuman size, trying to find a way to possibly contribute since he is unable to travel dimensions with Black Panther. As his first experiment finds success though, Goliath is disturbed by an unexpected visitor, Black Widow. Much to his horror, Widow announces that she will no longer be able to see Goliath, who stunned demands that Black Widow tell him that she never loved him as proof of her intent, and as tears well up in her eyes, she manages to force the words out and walks away. 
Again, we are seeing yet another step in the slow walking back of Goliath into Hawkeye. We still have a, a lot of issues to go through before we get there. But here again, we see him starting to revert back to his roots. And to be fair, it's a hell of a crossbow. The whole Black Widow thing really comes out of nowhere, in my opinion. I didn't even think at this point the two of them were still together. Though, in this time period, the two of them are pretty consistently one of the worst on-again, off-again relationships in Marvel Comics. The creative team really tries to sell me that these are two people who recently would have been described as being madly in love, and I just have a hard time buying it when I had forgotten at this point that they were even still together. The only good thing about this scene, except of course for its general brevity, a little over a page, is Black Widow's facial expressions as she tells Goliath she never loved him. It is very obvious that she is lying to him for some reason that isn't explained, but that she absolutely has to go through with it. And Bosema and Palmer do an amazing job letting the reader know the pain that her actions are causing her through her facial expressions. Now, for the moment, we're going to leave Avengers Mansion and quite honestly, Earth, and we are going to travel elsewhere where we find a strange creature journeying across an alien landscape. Riding on the back of this beast of burden is Scarlet Witch and her captor, Archon the Magnificent. As the pair approach Archon City, Archon actually chides Scarlet Witch for looking so glum, so down. Because in his mind, this woman who will soon be his queen should be excited by the prospect. Unfortunately, Wanda has other ideas, and she finds herself unable to have any pleasant feelings towards someone who is willing to commit the mass murder of her entire home planet Earth. Now again, in this issue, we are going from very standard superhero stuff into some really cool, awesome science fiction looking stuff. Even more than last issue, this one really mixes a lot of odd genres together, and yet I find myself surprisingly okay with it. At this point, Archon really is not doing a whole lot to attempt to win Scarlet Witch's affections, and talking about that mixing of genres, this is very Conan the Barbarian of him. He's being a very stereotypical barbarian, which is not a bad thing, but it does reinforce the idea that Archon is this amalgam of several different characters, honestly much like the style of his dimension, of his universe. His city even has some very Kirby-esque touches, although I will say it does lack the general overall aesthetic of Kirby. At the same time, it is nowhere near as weird or as refined as, say, Kirby's Asgard. So as the pair arrive, they are greeted by Archon's elderly advisor, who urges the Conqueror to act quickly in order to save their world. Archon inquires as to the status of the scientists whom are building his nuclear device. If you remember at the end of last issue, Archon kidnapped a number of top UN scientists to build this nuclear device. The Elder informs Archon that they have not completed their work, so Archon ventures into the dungeons, passing an prison toad on the way, and attempts to persuade the scientist to his cause. Unfortunately for the scientists, when words fail, Archon orders that the most defiant of the men are placed in a machine which forcibly removes the knowledge they seek. With this knowledge in hand, the advisor is now able to create a handheld orb capable of accomplishing Archon's mission. So hey look, toad's alive. It kind of makes 
Archon a little bit of a liar from last issue. Instead of making Toad nothing, he just transports him and chains him up, which is definitely more than nothing. But, you know, Toad's alive. I gotta say, the bald scientist here is really quite bold for someone who has been abducted and then imprisoned by a guy wielding lightning bolts and wearing a fur loincloth. A man who makes those kind of really bold life choices and has that kind of power is probably not someone with whom you should trifle. And unfortunately for Baldy here, Archon absolutely lives up to that opinion. Instead of screwing around and forcing the scientist to do what he wants, he merely rips the information out of their brains. And although the issue doesn't show this, I would have to wager that the side effects of this process are probably not all that appealing. It also makes me wonder though, who has this kind of technology just laying around? This is something very purpose-built. This isn't like a kitchen knife that has a lot of useful things. This is a very specific piece of technology that has really one application, ripping information out of people's minds, which also means it's very likely that this is not the first time this device has been used. Finally, although I have some, I would say, significant experience in the field of nuclear energy, my experience doesn't extend to nuclear weapons. Having said that, I am very certain that a little glowing orb does not have the power to do what Archon intends to do to Earth. It's a cool little looking thing, but that's not gonna do the job. That dog ain't gonna hunt. Now with his victory all but assured, Archon actually takes the opportunity to attempt to win Scarlet Witch's affections, telling her the lie that he managed to find a way to save both planets, his and Earth. Archon watches as Scarlet Witch begins to soften towards him. Taking things a step further, Archon takes Wanda to see a special flower, which is supposed to be picked by the Empyrean's betrothed and then worn by her on her wedding day. As Scarlet Witch picks the flower, she is reminded of a poem, Flower in the Crannied Wall, by Alfred Lord Tennyson, which she recites to Archon. Now, this interaction between Scarlet Witch and Archon during this portion is really kind of interesting. The relationship is developing in a very stereotypical way, but at the same time, I feel like Scarlet Witch is actually starting to soften toward him. In part, I think this is because she's a very submissive character in this era, but also I genuinely feel as though she is starting to see something else in him when he takes that moment and shares the flower with him. And in response, she does her own bit of sharing. Outside of the general interaction between the two of them, again, pulling from that Conan the Barbarian mold, Archon is intentionally supposed to be very charismatic. And again, we start to see that here. So the poem that Scarlet Witch quotes, Flower in the Crannied Wall, is, as I mentioned, a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, who's probably best known for his poem, Charge of the Light Brigade. He was Poet Laureate in the UK. Uh, the poem was written in 1863. It is six lines long. So Scarlet Witch actually quotes the whole poem to Archon. And the poem itself was written near the Wishing Wells at Wagoner's Wells. Slowly, these two are drawn towards one another, but just as they are about to kiss, the moment is disturbed by a guard warning that a hole in space has opened and invaders sally forth through it. I love the phrase sally forth. Immediately recognizing that this is a counterattack by the Avengers, Archon summons his warriors for battle. The Avengers have a really abrupt 
arrival at this point in the issue. And they don't get around to explaining how it happened for quite a while in this issue. Also, their timing is terrible. Archon and Scarlet Witch are so close to kissing. In fairness, it's really not a deserved moment, but there is something about that that I hate when the two characters get so close but just are unable to make contact. There's a sense of frustration there. Obviously, that's part of the trope of the near-miss kiss, but it so drives me up the wall. Even though the Avengers are vastly outnumbered, they manage to inflict some highly devastating attacks on Archon's forces. And overwhelmed by the might of the assembled heroes, Archon and what is left of his army are forced back within his stronghold. I'm really kind of impressed at how quickly Archon's barbarian army manages to assemble itself. They've got a rather impressive arsenal at their disposal, but it doesn't really seem to get them anywhere. Initially, they get off what amount to a few lucky blows, but after that, the Avengers basically crush them. We get some nice examples of Avenger abilities and some teamwork, but other than that, the scene is fairly unremarkable with the exception of the fact that I wish they hadn't used solid colored backgrounds, especially ones that really don't seem to be natural for the specific environment. It detracts from the overall appeal of the art. Now here, I truly believe that Archon is both stunned and outraged by the failure of his troops. This is a man who had to fight to win his position as Empyrean. And these were the men who fought by his side throughout this. So the fact that the Avengers are able to defeat them so easily and the fact that he is seeing so many of them thrown aside really has to be getting under his skin. Upon reaching his throne room, Archon seizes upon the Atom Sphere, which he intends to use to destroy the Earth. Scarlet Witch, of course, is appalled to learn that she has been deceived, becoming even further incensed when Archon claims to be above truth and falsehood. At this point, Archon's treatment of Scarlet Witch is pretty awful. Not only does he fully admit that he was leading her on, but also, that the truth is meaningless to him because he is so important. Can't imagine what it would be like to have a leader like that. Obviously, this is done to make him seem terrible and to dispel our earlier softening towards him, but it doesn't take away from the fact that this is a terrible way to treat people and believing you are above common decency and the respect of being honest is really just a vile way of existing. When the Avengers interrupt Archon's escape, he uses one of his lightning bolts to transport back to Earth, arriving at the pinnacle of the Empire State Building. Thankfully, the Avengers are right behind Archon, thanks to the magic of Thor's mighty hammer Mjolnir. While Goliath scales the side of the building, King Kong style, Quicksilver races to the top of the building. Although he's the first to arrive, Quicksilver is deflected by Archon and knocked off the building, only being saved by Goliath at the very last moment. So now that we're back in New York City, there's a very King Kong kind of scene going on here. It takes place on the Empire State Building, Goliath is climbing the building like Kong, Archon is holding a hostage in a very similar way that Kong does, and of course Scarlet Witch is a good stand-in for Fay Ray. Personally, being afraid of heights, and I mean afraid of heights, this scene does get to me yeah, just a little bit, especially when Archon manages to deflect Quicksilver off the building. That one kind of hits a primal nerve for me. 
Repelling attacks from both Black Panther and Vision, Archon attempts to destroy his world-destroying weapon, and Goliath is the only thing standing between the Earth and Armageddon, and even his strength is being tested by this otherworldly visitor. Just as all seems lost, Archon's advisor appears in the sky, telling the Empyrean that there is no need for him to continue, as Iron Man and Thor have created a vice that is even now restoring the life-giving rings around his planet. Seeing that their quarrel's at an end, Archon takes a moment to free Scarlet Witch from her betrothal, if, of course, that is her will, before returning to his home. Now, if this portion of the ending isn't Deus Ex Machina, I don't know what is. The advisor appearing in the sky to tell Archon that everything is fixed just in time for the end of the issue and the story arc is so Greek theater. This is the ending of Oedipus where the Greek chorus comes in and basically explains it all to Oedipus. I can't say it's a terrible way to end an, an issue, but it's not what I was expecting and it's not a surprise I'm particularly enamored with, we'll say. So as the rest of the Avengers return home, Scarlet Witch once again finds herself staring at the flower of life lost deep in her own thoughts. So the final panel of this issue is excellent. I may not necessarily agree with the sentiment that is being given to Scarlet Witch here, but I do understand the idea of taking a moment to enjoy the good parts of her recent experience. Scarlet Witch and Archon shared a moment, and she is taking a little bit of time to herself to reflect on those things in the presence of a memento. Overall, the ending of this issue was a bit odd, and the story arc was shorter than I would have liked, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. Archon is an interesting villain, and his world had a very unique feel to it. Also, Scarlet Witch very rarely gets a chance to shine, especially apart from her brother, at least in this era, so it was nice to see her get some of the focus, though she is still very much a stereotypical, submissive 1960s kind of ideal woman, and that does make it more difficult to enjoy at times. Before we go, I do want to mention that I have been having a little bit of an issue with one or two of the videos on the YouTube page. They have been removed for apparent copyright infringement. I'm not sure the details behind that. I'm still looking into that. So there's at least one video I know of that is currently missing and I am working to address that issue. So please bear with me if that is your preferred method of enjoying this podcast. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Next time, we are taking a look at Incredible Hulk number 128, and in this corner, The Avengers! Alright, hey! Alright, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. You ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.